The reading this morning is on page 982. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, titled The Faith of a Canaanite Woman. That's page 982. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Be really helpful if you kept that passage open. And uh, we're actually going to start in chapter 16, uh, but we'll be coming back to chapter 15 and to that reading about that woman. So it's on page. Father, we come reminding ourselves, or perhaps some of us more than others, that we need to listen carefully to what you're saying to us. Father, for all of us, there are challenges in your word to us that deep down we don't want to hear. But your word to us is always good, and it's always true. And so, Father, we ask that you will help us to hear you, and hear you in such a way that we respond to what you're saying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were asked what are the great things of our age, the most significant things of our era, if you were to, as you watch the news and as you read and as you discuss and hear, I wonder what you would say were the most striking, significant, profound issues of our era. On the 15th of March, this year, so in a couple of weeks' time, is expected that thousands upon thousands of school children, young people 
across the world will march on global climate strike day as a protest against what they see is the indifference of our political leaders to take seriously the challenge of climate change. Here are people who are motivated by what they see as perhaps the defining issue of our era and they're prepared to make a stand as many of them have been doing every Friday for the last months when they've not gone to school. They're profoundly motivated. Whatever you think about the cause, I want to suggest that we should learn deeply from them and people like that who espouse causes that they see as being of enormous significance in our age. And I'm speaking to us as Christians. Because you see, as Christians, we too ought to read the signs of the times. We ought to be concerned about creation. We ought to be concerned about the natural world. It is God's world. And he is at work in it. And we are accountable to him for what we do with it. But there is also a deeper work that God has been doing and is doing. Something that operates below the surface that in so many ways is mysterious and hidden and yet enormously profound. Defining, you could say. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be deeply sensitive to what God has been doing and what he is doing. The danger is that we as Christians read the world in a one-dimensional way and we miss the truly significant things that God is doing. And that's why we need to learn from two groups of people in chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. Two groups of people, if you have a look at verse 1, the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to Jesus. And do you notice what it says? Have a look. They demand a sign from him. We want God to justify, to verify rather, who you are and what you're saying. Sadducees and Pharisees, both in their own ways, were profoundly religious, deeply theological. They weren't natural friends. In fact, they were more enemies because they read the world in different ways. But they had this in common. They were concerned about God and they were concerned about his people, at least in principle. Their practices didn't always match their language. But their roots lay in a profound concern for God 
his reputation and the well-being of his people. The Pharisees were, in effect, had their, they had their roots in radicalism, radical religion. They were concerned for the obedience of God's people to God's scriptures. And so over the years, they brought about all kinds of rules and regulations because they wanted to make sure that true religion, true worship, entered into every area of life, that there was nothing that a person could do that was not an expression of obedience and faithfulness to the God of Israel. They were radical in their religious devotion and innovative in their theology. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the conservatives. They wanted to preserve the status quo. They didn't want to go beyond what they could be certain of, and they were deeply concerned about the institutions and practices of Israel, especially the temple. Now, both of them had their problems. Jesus has already called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and we will see that he will do similar things with the Sadducees as well. Nevertheless, it's very important that we understand that at their foundations, these are profoundly theological, religious, deeply committed people. And they come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. Because you see, Jesus Christ is a threat to them. By the way, Jesus Christ has always been a threat to religion. Always. Jesus is a threat to both of them. And so these unlikely co-conspirators get together. It's amazing what can happen when you have a common enemy, isn't it? You can love the most unlikely people and join cause with them if you have a common enemy. And Jesus is the common enemy. Chapter 16 and verse 1, they ask for a sign which you'll notice it says, have a look at the text, to test him. What they want to do is to catch him out because they don't believe that God is going to verify Jesus. Anything that happens is not going to be sufficient that says, yes, this is God's stamp of approval. So they want to undermine Jesus and his authority. They demand a sign. I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse 2 of chapter 16. Jesus, it's a response about the weather, about climate, but really the weather. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You understand the lesser. And by the way, that's important. Imagine in an agrarian society, knowing what the weather is going to be is really important for your crops and for your livestock. That's important. Read the weather. 
Climate change is important. But you don't understand the greater. Because you see, something profound is happening. Something epoch-changing. The era of the old is going, and a new era is beginning. God is at work changing things, doing something that hasn't happened before, and this will change the world and human experience forever, and it's what's happening in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember the beginning of Matthew's gospel? It's Christmas. Maybe you remember this. Who is Jesus described as? Emmanuel, God with us. In the person of Jesus Christ, God is present, and He's at work, and He is changing everything. It's a new era. But you can read the weather, Jesus says to these religious people, and these leaders of the people. But you're not reading the signs of the times. That the world is being changed in Jesus Christ. That's what he means by the signs of the times. It's what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. And he's been doing extraordinary things, hasn't he? You only need to have a cursory understanding of the gospel to know that what Jesus does is remarkable. And I don't know whether you've had this experience, but you read about the healings, and you read about the teachings, and you read about the raising of the dead, and the casting out of demons, and you think, this is extraordinary. Can you imagine if this broke out in Willoughby? Wow, Sydney Morning Herald, even the Sydney Morning Herald will be there. But, but, but we miss something very important. We miss something very important when we think like that. Because the truth of the matter is that an awful lot of what Jesus does and says is elusive and not obvious. In the earlier section of Matthew's Gospel, we've had two feeding miracles. Feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Wow! Jesus feeds 4,000 people and 5,000 people before that with a handful of loaves and fish. A small amount of food. That, that's extraordinary. It has echoes of Moses, God feeding the people in the desert. And so you think, how could anybody miss the significance of what Jesus is doing. How could Pharisees and Sadducees or anybody be oblivious to the fact that something extraordinary is happening through Jesus Christ? By the way, in my experience, that tends to mean that we think we're so much smarter than they were. We're not like the Sadducees and Pharisees. We would have understood all of that. It's so obvious, isn't it? No, it isn't. Uh, for example, supposing you had been on the fourth row of the 4,000 or the 5,000 people, what would you have seen? Jesus says to his disciples when, they, when he raises the issue of the crowds needing feeding, uh, he says, you go and feed them which must have been a depressing moment or a moment of complete absurdity for the disciples because all they've got is a handful of food and there are 5,000, 4,000 people in the second case. You feed them. But that's exactly what happens, isn't it? 
Now, we know because we have the eyewitness testimony of the disciples that Jesus does something extraordinary. It is through what Jesus does that the food is multiplied and is more than enough for 5,000 and 4,000 people. But if you were in the crowd, I'm not sure you would have known that. What you would have seen is the disciples feeding them. There is something elusive about what Jesus does and what's said. But that's not the main reason why the Sadducees don't read the signs of the times properly. That's not the cause, and this is where we need to take note. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4 of chapter 16. In response to their request for a sign, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation, which, by the way, has very little to do with sex and has to do with worship and obedience to God in all its dimensions. It's an Old Testament phrase. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the night sign of Jonah. Well, that's absolutely clear, isn't it? Absolutely clear, you're going to get the sign of Jonah. He's already said this before. In chapter 12, when the Pharisees come to him and ask for a sign, he says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And back then, the focus is on Jesus and who he is. Here, the focus is somewhat different. But what does it mean? Can I again say, when you read the Bible, don't just skim over things. Sign of Jonah, mm, deep, profound. What does it mean? Well, you remember the story of Jonah. And by the way, I've said this before, but important to remember that the story of Jonah is not there so that kids' own leaders can have some material to teach kids' own. It's not really a children's book at all. It's a very adult book. But you remember the story. Jonah gets a call from God to go to Nineveh. That is Assyria. Assyria are the arch enemies. They're nasty, nasty, beastly people. They love conquering people. They love raping and pillaging. And especially they've been very good at doing that to Israel. They're enemies, Israel's enemy. They're a major power. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And of course, Jonah goes in the opposite direction. And as a result of that, he has an episode with a large fish. And the result of that is that Jonah reluctantly, but nevertheless, in obedience, goes and preaches to Nineveh, and the Ninevites respond. Now, if you got that, an Israelite goes to Gentiles who are enemies of Israel, proclaims a message of judgment, and these pagan enemies, they respond. And Jesus says to the Pharisees here, you're not going to get any sign other than the sign of Jonah. What's that mean? Well, what happens in Jonah is a devastating critique of God's people. Because Israel, like Jonah, don't care about anybody other than themselves. They're self-satisfied. They have this sense of self-entitlement. They see themselves as superior and they would love to see pretty much everybody else wiped off the map. They, after all, are God's people. And they've lost sight of the fact that they exist so that the nations will come to worship the God of Israel. That's their calling. 
Israel needs to be faithful to what God has called them to be so that the nations will come and worship the God of Israel. They exist for the sake of the nations, not for the sake of themselves. And so Jonah is a devastating critique of that. And it's also a devastating critique of their own spiritual complacency and self-importance. They are, a, to use the language of Jesus, a wicked and adulterous generation, but they think they're all right. The Ninevites repent. God's people don't. That's what's going on in Jonah. So how does it work out in the case of Jesus? What's the sign of Jonah that he's referring to here? What is something that parallels what's been happening to Jonah? What, do, do you remember what's happened in chapter 15 in that rather strange story about the Canaanite woman? Canaanite, Canaanite. Whoa, Canaanite. If you know your Old Testaments, that's a buzzword. When Israel comes out of Egypt and comes into the promised land, it's filled with Canaanites. And Canaanites have had a very, very bad history of moral and spiritual decadence. They've some, done some pretty appalling things and God says you need to Remove them. And they've been Israel's enemies all along. They're not part of Israel. They're excluded. But this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. No entitlement. And notice that she recognizes that she is not part of Israel. I want you to notice Jesus' words to her. In verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I've come for Israel. That's right. Because the salvation of the world will come through Israel. And Jesus needs to deal with Israel if the nations are going to come to Christ. He's Israel's Messiah so that he might be the Messiah for the Gentiles. And until his work on the cross is finished, he's come to be the Messiah of Israel, to deal with them so that the Gentiles might come. Notice the woman's response. She says, I understand that. He says it's not right to take, he uses this imagery, very stark imagery. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The children there referring to Israel, the dogs referring to the Gentiles. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See, this woman recognizes something. First of all, she recognizes something about Jesus. Notice that she calls him son of David. She recognizes there's something of kingship of messiahship about him, in massive contrast to the Sadducees and Pharisees, by the way. And not only that, but for whatever reason, she seems to have a glimpse that ultimately God's purposes are for everybody. I have no entitlement, she's saying. I can't come and say I'm an Israelite. I'm not a Jew. But even the dogs can get the crumbs under the master's table. This is the sign of Jonah, isn't it? The Gentiles coming to God 
And here the focus is on Jesus Christ. It's specific because it's about what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. God with us. Emmanuel. And from there, Jesus, in the same area, people start to bring the sick and the diseased to him. And he heals them. They're non-Jews. And notice in verse 31, they praise the God of Israel. Have you got that? What's happening in Jesus Christ is extraordinary in terms of the miracles he's doing, the teaching he's bringing. But you're getting a glimpse of that bigger vision, of that fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises that when God brings in the new era, the nations will come and worship the God of Israel. And that's what they're doing in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where it finds its focus and so when he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, he's basically saying, nothing's changed, has it? Your ancestors should have taken notice of what Jonah did and what happened and what that book means. They should have seen that God is the God of the whole world and you have a specific role and there is no self-entitlement. You have been called by me to a task. And you should be aware of your own hearts and be willing to repent. And the people of Jonah's day weren't willing to do that. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and all that they represent, they're not willing to do it either. Do you see what a, a massive rebuke it is? They can read the weather, but they can't see what's happening in Jesus Christ. They can see the smaller thing, the lesser thing, but they can't see the really big thing, the epoch-changing thing that's going on in Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, and in what they're seeing here about the Gentiles. And instead, they set themselves against what's going on. I want to finish with this. It's the question of well, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? And the answer lies in that phrase, wicked and adulterous generation, which Jesus then goes on to explain in chapter 6. And in verses 5 to 12, he talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then he explains what the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is, which he says in verse 12 is their teaching. I take it in the context, and especially what's going to happen, or not least what's going to happen in chapter six, when, uh, 16, when they get to Caesarea Philippi and declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is their stance on Jesus. Their rejection of what he's saying, of who he is and what he's about. In other words, to use biblical language, the problem is unbelief. It's not evidence, it's unbelief. You know, unbelief is not an issue out there amongst the non-believers. Unbelief is a problem for all of us. It's present in churches. We are all susceptible to unbelief. 
But we need to understand what unbelief is. Unbelief is not, I don't believe in God's existence. Unbelief has to do, its foundations lie in two things. It has to do with truth. What is truth? And it has to do with what is good for us. And how do those things relate? What's truth? Foundation story for understanding unbelief is Genesis 3. The serpent in the garden insinuates that God is not telling truth, or at least not the whole of it. He can't be trusted. You can't take God's truth as the ultimate truth. You need to decide what truth is. There is another truth And not only that, but God doesn't always have your best interests in mind. And so when he says no, or when he says yes, when he sets boundaries, they are not necessarily for your good. And so you need to choose for yourself. Unbelief is to doubt God's truthfulness and to doubt his benevolence towards us all the time and the result which is what the pharisees are doing is saying we know better you justify yourself to us because you see the truth now finds its focus in jesus what jesus says is what god says because he's emmanuel god with us and what jesus defines as being good and what he talks about in terms of the boundaries are for our good because he's Emmanuel, God with us, and he's trustworthy. Do you see the challenge? As I said, this isn't just an issue for people outside. The Sadducees and the Pharisees remind us that it's a problem from within. And in fact, Jesus is very aware of that, isn't it? Verse 6 of chapter 16, he says to his disciples, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Everything changed with Jesus Christ. A new era began. And truth is to be found in Jesus And God always, always has our best interests at heart. The question for Christians is do we believe that? And belief is to do with how we respond more than a merely intellectual response. Am I willing to trust the truth that Jesus speaks? Am I willing to trust that what God says is true and that what God says is good? And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Handsome is as handsome does. Unbelief will mean that we will play fast and loose with what God has definitively done in Jesus Christ. 
we won't read the signs of the times properly. We'll put our own spin on it. But you know the work of Jesus Christ in one sense is finished, but it continues. The implications go on. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age means he's still at work amongst us. And so one of the things I think we should be asking is not just what has God done in Jesus Christ. Foundational, yes. But what's he currently doing? How do we read what God is doing now? And what does that say to us? So let me throw one last thing out to you. I read recently that the fastest growing church in the world at the moment is in Iran. Who'd have thought? And that because of the culture and language links, Iranians are reaching Afghans for Christ. Who would have thought? Whereas so often in our sophisticated Western Christianity, with all our theological colleges, with all our cleverness, with all our privileges, It's rather different, mostly, isn't it? And I wonder sometimes whether things like what God is doing in the church in Iran should be a sign to us that maybe one element in our ineffectiveness of reaching people for Christ has to do with our unbelief. And remember, unbelief has to do with truth and what's good for us, and it demonstrates itself in behavior. I will trust God. I will believe that what he says is the best for me. But the encouraging thing is this. If Jesus will accept a Canaanite woman, even before the cross. If we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he will restore us and renew us. So whoever you are and whatever your history and whatever your current circumstances, the message is always, it's for you, it's for you. Nobody's excluded. The Canaanite woman is a profound reminder that there are no no's from God's point of view. The question is whether we will come. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take your word and write it on our hearts and make us responsive to you. Father, above all, help us to trust you. This big issue, will we trust what you say and what you are towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.